All right, I got till 10.45, so let's just put it in fifth gear here. I want to finish these areas of God's tweets, we're calling them, and you have been so kind in listening, so thank you very much. Uh, but these are the five books that we've talked about. Uh, they're all one chapters in the Bible about Obadiah. That's the only one in the Old Testament. And then we went to Philemon. We went to Second John yesterday to Third John. And today, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jude. What is worth fighting for? And it's, it's the area of doctrine. Now, doctrine not necessarily is is uh, uh, being taught in Jude, but it is talking about the defense of, of Jude and Jude's interest in this. So um, maybe to get into this, because you asked about books, the, the, the recent book, the last two books that I've read in the last few months, I do try and read about a book a week, somewhere in that neighborhood, probably average that to give you a perspective. So um, the, the two books that I finished was We Will Not Be Silent by Lutzer, uh, which is a tremendous read. It would articulate what many of you, I think, would probably feel. If you're coming here to family camp with your family, extended family, you are good families. Because if you weren't, you had no interest in God, you wouldn't be coming to a family camp like this, quite frankly. So uh, my conversations with many of you um, are, are related to really good topics. The other book that I finished is, is by Al Mohler called The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church. Let me read you a beginnings component to this that Al Mohler states. This was out of 2020 in June. I think it's relevant. I think it's accurate. I think it's a godly perspective of what's going on today. But he, he loves Winston Churchill. He, he moves into the time period that, that our world came out of World War II, uh, World War I, and before World War II, and that's why a lot of the countries, including our own, didn't want to get back into a world war. And so he recognizes Churchill's prophetic warnings about the rise of Nazi threat that had been so right yet so ignored for so long, and he asks, why is that happening? And he, he quotes this six-volume history of the war in Churchill. He says that Churchill was documenting a storm that was gathering in public view for all to see if they would only see it. Summarizing his case, Churchill described the volume as the story of, quote, how the English-speaking peoples, through their unwisdom, carelessness, and good nature, allowed the wicked to return. And, of course, rearm. So he borrows Winston Churchill's title, The Gathering Storm, in his writings, that already presents itself as a tremendous challenge to the faithfulness of the Christian church. Actually, the storm has already been on the horizon. This is the gathering storm of the secular age. Historical analogies are always imperfect. The storm of the secular age is not so easily identified as the rise of the Nazi threat, nor is it focused on one movement or one leader, even on one readily summarized set of ideas. But make no mistake, it's a storm. And his main point is that we need to um, maintain faithfulness that lies in understanding the reality. And stay with me in this sentence. He says, they may consider themselves in the secular age, it's not inhabited by people, but it's identified as secular. Themselves, they consider themselves spiritual in our world today, and they may even cite a religious affiliation or a matter of family identity. Here's the, the key issue, 
is that the society is distanced from the Christian theism as the fundamental explanation of the world and the moral structure of our human society. To summarize, one of Winston Churchill's great virtues was his ability to see the storm and then to summon the courage and conviction to go into the storm. That's the challenge of faced by Christians in the United States today, to see the storm, to understand it, and then to demonstrate the courage to face the storm. We must see the storm and understand it. And so he goes on basically that to say the responses that we have, that some Christians read this and respond by one of two ways. One, we can respond in utter despair, retreating together to the corners of coffee shops with a false sense of nostalgia that longs for the past, usually idealized. Or we respond equally erroneously. We might be tempted to look for rescue and political victory, believing that a retreat of secular thinking is only one election away. In other words, Christians might indeed have attempt to rescue society through the social political movement. And while we must be never demean the importance of elections nor diminish the responsibility of stewardship, Christians have with their vogue. We also dare not believe political victory will secure ultimate and lasting peace. Rescue will not come by mere politics. We do not need a political movement. We need a theological protest. And so he basically takes the book and challenges people to realize that you do need to contend for your faith in the areas, basically, the chapters are Western civilization, and that would include things related to BLM or, or critical race theory or... Um, uh, battles within human life, over marriage, over the family, and the, de the, the definition to a family, over gender and sexuality, we would know as same-sex attraction, and all that comes with that, or uh, just the generational storm and how people are seeing it differently. So you have a social, moral, and a theological issue. And so that's, that's worth a good read for many of you that are readers and you like to bring definition. But here's my point to all this, that Churchill himself... Uh, and words that flowed with a fixed resolve of a man contending earnestly for the preservation of his country and with similar determination, let's toggle the Jude, that exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith. The enemy here is apostasy and what hangs in the balance is the preservation of truth and morality. Jude makes a final appeal to the soldiers of faith who are in the midst of a raging battle against the onslaught of apostasy. And so uh, I, I think that there can be a, a dualism as long as what's leading in the engine that's driving you as a believer in Jesus Christ and making sure that your church is not being deteriorated or your church is not losing its own effectiveness as it influences its own community. So uh, my response to the young girl who ever wrote it that's a mother with all the other details that I would say, you need to know your stage of life and you every day need to start with, so I mentioned four relationships, that those relationships are not linear. I look at them as more, here's your center point, which is God, and out of that, out of that, so every day you start with God, and so it gives you a perspective about the sovereignty of God and where we are in our own societies today. And then on top of that, then you maintain all of these relationships. 
you and your family and you with with uh, uh, as a citizen and you as an, if you're working and or in, and um, and then also of course with family your schooling and everything else and then your church and sometimes those bulge out more than others but the fact is you are discipling of your own family so sometimes we start comparing ourselves to other people and comparison always kills any contentment so for most of the time, for women, they hear somebody step up here and do all of these things, and then they're feeling like a failure because, like, I can't do any and all that. And maybe God doesn't want you to do all that. Maybe you have a capacity, uh, like Deuteronomy talks about, leaders of tens or hundreds of thousands, and you're a leader of ten. Then do that and do the best you can. But part of that is going to be involved with your church and your family within your church. So it's kind of like the three-wing circus, that who's in the center ring, then we're all going to be involved in that, whether that's your Awana group or, or your schooling or your family activities or whatever. But this issue here that Jude writes about, and put up the screen here because the bigger picture of Jude is that, and this is a lot to read, but let me do it because this is summarizes that Jude originally intended to write in the theme of salvation, but because of his pressing threats to his readers, he turns his attention instead to those who would seek to destroy the gospel. So the dangers of false doctrine and rebellion are not new in the history of God's dealings with men, and so he walks through multiple Old Testament references, and he doesn't quote an Old Testament, but he mentions about nine of these, and then he finishes with, how do you handle and resist the onslaughts? So I think it's fair to say that in the context of Jew dealing with in the church and churches, this is like 25 years before John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, so there were issues even back 25 years earlier, so you're talking about in the mid-60s. Paul was writing these things. Peter was writing uh, his letters. And then here we are with our own scenario. So how do you handle this? You're trying to guard and be aware. And as, as Jude, uh, um, who, who's, who's very Jewish, so in his writings, it's not so much, let me give you definition as the Greeks knew, but let me give you descriptions. That's why the Old Testament is full of descriptive terms of who God is. You get to the New Testament, it's very much defined. So let's read Jude, and it's 1031. I think what I'll do is, let me just read it, and then, um, and then let me give you what have in your hand, the overview of Jude. It's really not complicated. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Jude. Let me just read through this. Let me pick another version because I thought it was just as effective, maybe in some ways a little clearer here. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, I, I won't. Uh, okay, great. Awesome. Let's do that. I like that idea. Okay, well then let's read through Jude, and then um, let me give it to you here, okay? If I can find it. Uh, all right. How many of you have Logos? Use that. If you don't, you get an app for it. It's great. That's what I'm looking for right now. Here you go, okay? It says, let's just read it. It won't take long. And think threes, okay? So if you read Jude, there are 16, some say 18 triplets. So when you're reading Jude, think Jude here, who, who um, it's a, it's a um, 
a lot of history to that. So just think triplets. Okay, here you go. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother James, to those who've been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, they've secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our Lord or of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who didn't believe. And the angels, who didn't keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. These he's kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. Here's, here's the third of that triplet. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And in the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, they slander celestial beings, and something that's not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do and they don't understand. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. There's another three. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. There are clouds without rain. They're blown along by the wind. They're like autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They're like wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. They're wandering stars for whom black darkness has been reserved forever. He adds on top of all this, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord's coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly for all the ungodly acts they've done in the ungodly way. And in all the harsh words, ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said in the last times there's going to be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and you pray in the Holy Spirit. You keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and bring to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. You snatch others from the fire and save them to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating either clothing stained by corrupted flesh. 
to him who's able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault without and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, authority through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember all ages, before all ages, now and forevermore. It's a great letter. Wouldn't you like to be able to write something like that? That's inscripturated. So let me make some comments here. Here's the threefold big breakdown. Let me just give it to you straight up in the time frame we have. Um, basically, he takes the front end of this and says, here's the call. I'm like calling you to arms, and I'm giving you an address. Then I'm going to give you instruction about how you end up handling this contending for the faith. It's basically, here's the arguments why these people in authority within the church and I think we can make greater application to a whole society that is so corrupt. And then he's basically giving them a charge. He's giving an admonition and saying, like, here's things you can do to contend for the faith. So if you kind of get that, you can understand that Jude is the guy that's writing this. And, and there's, a, there's eight different Judes in the New Testament. Most would agree that this is Jesus' half Brother, so could you imagine you and James, there's about five brothers and Jesus and a number of other plural sisters. So we know at least there were six other siblings in the family. Jesus was the oldest. He was, of course, uh, um, Mary carried him. But then they had children as any good Jewish family, so he had at least six brothers and sisters, and Jude would have been one of those. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? It's hard for all of us because you have a brother or sister and thinking, I can't imagine them being perfect. But he did. Jesus never reacted wrong. He always was kind. He was always humble. He was always willing to help. He was always right. 30 years of that. And they, I mean, really? And you didn't get it till after the resurrection? So be patient with some of you that have siblings or family that just don't get it. They don't, haven't had spiritual hearing fixed. They're not hearing it. Which, by the way, some gave, talked to me yesterday about that, and, you know, being in Christ, the idea of being in Christ, so now your spiritual hearing is there. That did not fix my listening, didn't fix my listening, okay? So I still have listening problems. I can hear, I'm just not listening. So there you go, for those of you that are married. So here is Jude, who, who um, as far as we know, wasn't pastor. He certainly was some kind of leader within the church, whether that was Jerusalem or he kind of extended out. His, his other brother, James, was the pastor there in Jerusalem, half-brother. He was full brother, but to Jesus, half-brother. That's why it's interesting, the triplets he mentions. Notice the front end of this Jude. He calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't call himself the brother of Jesus Christ, although he was a half-brother. And he was also the brother of James, the church. To them that are, and he mentions triplets again, they're sanctified, you're preserved, you're called, this irresistible drawn to who Christ is. And he does mention again these triplets of mercy and peace and love then he says, listen, you know, calls them beloved, this family relationship, 
And he mentions, I'm giving all diligence to write to you. He didn't, I don't think he wanted to get into the whole idea, but he talks about this common salvation. He's not just talking about this area of the gospel, but he's expanding it. He says, it's needful for me to write unto you, and I'm exhorting you. He's basically giving them instruction and and, and challenging them, and this is the whole point, that he's saying, I want you to contend for the faith. I want you to be able to argue for the apologetics. I, I want you to not be contentious, but be in a place, and these are all kind of military terms. He's like, I want you to buy into this. Like, you can't just sit back and, and float down life in the inner tube and sip lemonade. Like, this is not a cruise ship. This is a battleship. You have to be willing to be able to discuss and, and engage in what is we know as the faith, the embodiment of all of the truth you need to be willing to do this. And I'm exhorting you that you would do this earnestly. It's the idea of, of the, the term agonizing. You're stretching forth as it was with about nine guys, and I'm not sure we're in the right mind, that went up and down um, the uh, climbing uh, wall like for 30 minutes, and Dave led the pack. I'm like, wow, and, and, and uh, Pastor Steve's boy, Danny did this. I'm like, wow, my hat's off to you, man. Like 28 times up and down that tower. Like, wow. They were agonizing. They were like, I'm in on this. My hat's off to them. That's kind of the idea of you need to do this because this is core to your life. Why does he say this? He says this because there are certain men crept in unawares. It's the idea of a shark at high water getting into the reef. It's the picture of a crocodile sliding into the river. It's, it's, it's the thief that opens the back door into your house. This is the picture. And he describes them, notice, and you don't even know it. They're unawares. This is the people that are climbing over the border wall to get into the country. Those are kind of the pictures that he says, listen, these are those who before old that God had ordained this condemnation. He had already said, these people bad things are going to happen. And he identifies them as ungodly men. These are without God. These are unsafe people. They're turning the grace. How do you say, well, how do you know this? Their emphasis is on turning the grace of our God into licentiousness. Basically, it is a license to have sex. And the emphasis is all on immorality. And on top of that, they are denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, two different terms. But the emphasis, and it's interesting to know when you read through the rest of this and you put the corpus of New Testament, that anytime there's an issue with authority, there's always some issue of immorality just below the surface. 
And it's like a beach ball they're trying to push down and hide it. But the whole drive for sex and immorality and a justification, so they use grace as an excuse for it's all okay. So anytime you have an anti-authority attitude, you've you got to ask the question, is there something going on morally? Okay, so let me take a parenthesis. Some of you have teenagers, and they're pushing back on your authority. And I would submit to you that their pushback on you as authority is probably because they have something else going on here with a struggle with their immorality, struggling with their sex. So in my opinion, I'm stepping away from the pulpit, but my opinion is this could be applied to today why there's a strong push for the LGBTQ and same sex to be able to come into the back door for a church. And they will take, as I gave you a personal illustration, but regardless from the personal illustration, I could give you many illustrations of those because it's, it's an anti-authority attitude that's always attached to appears morals. So this is why Jude says, these people, you better be careful about them. And then he says in verse 5, I'm therefore going to put you in remembrance. It evidently things have been said before that I want you to know that the Lord, and then he moves into these, these uh, um, Old Testament because he's a good Jew. And they didn't have the, Old, the New Testament as we have it, so he's moving back to scriptures. So basically, he gives what I would call four marks of spiritual terrorism. He, he gives four marks of those that we're like on the border wall and trying to protect those that are trying to get in. And he's saying, these are the profile of these people that are trying to get in. This is the profile of the crocodile that's sliding into your waters. And so let me summarize it for the sake of time. There are four. I don't have in your notes. Rather going through every one of these, which I'd be happy to, number one, their doom is certain. And that's the point that he's making in verse 5 through 7. And if you want to put another note, their approach is we're going to overwhelm the minority. They're going to end up saying in every one of these occasions, and he mentions the history of Israel in verse 5, and eventually they went 38 years wandering in the wilderness. And then the second example is of the judgment of the angels. They broke rank and stepped lustfully beyond their prescribed abode to cohabitate with human women. And so there's a whole, you know, okay, what's your theory about all that? And there's theories about that. And if we had time, it'd be fun to talk about some of those things. And was this the demons that were cast out of heaven and they inhabited um, men that therefore became licentious with women and then all that came of all of that? Or thirdly, Sodom and Gomorrah. Like those rebellious angels, the apostates, they crept in unnoticed, they impregnated the church with their lies and licentiousness. And so today, when you have conversations with people, um, that it was easy to put into, well, that's Romans 1, of course, that, 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 that their, their view of same-sex marriage or same-sex attraction, that that's all okay and God's okay with that. So they go back to the Old Testament and theologic embryonic theologians that would then say, well, see, it really, God wasn't judging Sodom and Gomorrah uh, for their, their appetite for sexual things. It actually was because they were given over to stuff and they had too much stuff and that was the biggest emphasis. But then you get to this passage and you say, well, Jude actually is identifying not their overabundance, 
but their desire, verse 7, for fornication and going after strange flesh. And they're set forth for examples. And all of these are set as being their doom being certain. Then he toggles verse 8 to 10, secondly, as like a mark of those spiritual terrorists, their tongues are blasphemous. And so he's saying, they, they essence um, all of this conversation. They're filthy dreamers of the flesh. They despise dominion. They speak evil of dignities. All of this, and all the way down to verse 16 as well, by the way, all of this, in essence, they're humorizing the supernatural. They're making the immoral innocent. They're mocking doctrinal beliefs. That's kind of the approach. So there are some similarities today of those kind of approaches or attitudes. Some of you have been at work, and you look like you're getting painted in the far right, this fringe, like you're weird, you're odd, like, come on, get with the program here. This is the same approach. And then he ends up, thirdly, talking about uh, their doom is certain and their tongues are blasphemous, but thirdly, their religion is empty. So he moves into, again, these areas. We mentioned godless men and Michael and Satan and Cain and Balaam and Korah, all related, by the way, to Cain and Balaam and Korah, particularly Cain and Balaam to stuff. The emphasis of their religion and false religions is always about gaining more. And if you have more, then obviously God bless you. So if you don't have as much, God isn't blessing you, which is a Jewish mentality skewed because that, that is kind of how they looked at it. So, so again, I'm, I'm trying to move forward here for the sake of time. Then he moves into Thirdly, their religion is empty. They, they varnish over this greedy gain by mentioning the way of Cain, the heir of Balaam, the rebellion of Korah. All of them have to do with anti-authority. Eventually, it ties into morality or an overemphasis on money. So he gives these vivid pictures as a good Jewish writer. Verse 12 and 13, these are feasts of charity. And he used these terms of clouds are without water, selfish shepherds, empty clouds, dead trees, raging waves, wandering stars, and these pictures that all of, of people that would identify with, and they're just an empty religion. And then finally, he does move to the last uh, um, typical point of their ways are godless, and he's constantly saying, listen, you need, I'm saying this because I want you to identify these people. You need to be all in. You need to be a part of the battle. It's a very military sense because these are people that are there to destroy your own church. They are there to eventually destroy an influence because their society wants to push you down and eliminate you. This is just before Nero, who had died in 68, and, and Nero himself, who had, we have scattered notes of persecution, but it really got ramped up. And I think Jude's writing was right in the front end of how really bad this persecution happened. And the emphasis was basically their ways were very godless, because they were living in a society in which they were so godless that he mentions, let's jump to verse 15, they're executing judgment upon all, and notice they're convincing 
um, convincing those that are ungodly among them of all that are ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their heart speeches which are ungodly, do you get the sense that God is not a part of their conversation? And Jude puts all of this in this painting, this picture, and helping people to know that that these are murmurs and they're complainers and they're walking after their own lust. And he kind of summarizing their mouths are speaking great swelling words and they're having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. It's this whole idea where, hey, they got all the answers. And so if you have, so he, Jude knows these people are getting leveraged into a corner. They're getting put into like, I have no voice. So, so an application, if I can, for some of us right now, because I've talked to too many people, including me this week, there's kind of a sense like, you know, well, we're on the minority and we're like, we're really getting persecuted. Well, first of all, uh, um, there's probably a greater remnant. There's a silent majority because if all you listen to, you know, you're either Fox News or CNN. Those are kind of like the two opposites. And I always... Five minutes into conversation, I can tell you, are they a Fox News listener or a CNN listener? In either case, limit the amount that you're taking. And this one, you probably just need to eliminate totally. You're not going to get anything right about it. So we're living in a world in which today is very unique within our own country. But we are not persecuted. You're isolated. You're leveraged. There probably is more people like you in our country than what is being said, quite honestly. Truth to be told, uh, on the elections, we'll find out, you know, a, a few years from now, or actually a year from now with the, post, with the mid-elections. But, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis here is within the church context, and Jude is just identifying people that are ungodly. So don't be surprised when the ungodly rule because the ungodly are acting like there is no God. Del Tackett the other day crystallized in my mind what I've been thinking about a long time. So you can go to Proverbs, Proverbs 122, and he talks about three groups of people, the simple, the fool, and the scorner. You're familiar with that. Then he does talk about the wise. So his, his uh, hypothesis would be that in the, in the 40s to the 60s, we were probably as a nation like very simple. But somewhere in those 60s that we moved from the 60s to probably about the 90s that we moved as a nation to a foolish nation. We were like simple and life's good because we got all this stuff and everything's great and the, and the uh, baby boomers are, are, are kind of moving into their own. Then you get to the foolish years and the foolish years somewhere in the 90s to probably 2010 to 2015 where the foolish words were there is no God. And that's kind of as a country, it's almost like everybody's getting leveraged out of having any kind of God talk on a, on a, on a moral level and a societal level and, and even larger churches that were like, they're moral, but where's God in this picture? Then he says, and I think it's true that we're now, we're not in no longer the simple area or the foolish area, but we're in the scorner area. Scorners aren't, are not just saying there is no God, but if you believe there's a God, we're going to leverage you right out of any conversation. I think it's a fair analysis of it. So you as a layman, you have responsibilities to understand and identify where are we. But I would also say to you that our country, it's so hard for us in our country because we had a history of a moral theism and that's why it's so hard for us. 
I have many, many friends, underground church leaders in China. We've been up there too many times to count. And in conversations and training with them, they look at the church totally different than how I look at it. I mean, they have been persecuted. They've never had an organized church per se. So their view of the church is, of course, we're going to have persecution. I'm not talking about isolation, and I'm not talking about about uh, um, just getting leveraged into a corner. I'm talking about having meetings in homes and being in those homes where we would have 120 people in the size of a, of a living room that most of your living rooms are. Everybody's sitting like this for two hours. I mean, that was just normal. The churches were eventually put... I remember one time going to this one town and like we were in the worst neighborhood and I said isn't this kind of like a bad neighborhood like yeah but that's why we have this here because the police won't come in here so we can sing as loud as we want to sing because they won't come get us this is kind of their mentality so for them to get arrested and I've talked to too many to count their response is like I'm privileged like can you believe it they would, they would talk to me and say, well, you first generation? No, many of them were, but many of them were like, no, actually, my dad, my grandpa, my great-grandpa. I talked to one guy that he traced his, his spiritual lineage back to his, his uh, being a, a, a father from like fourth or fifth generation to Hudson Taylor. This is like a badge of honor. This is like, yes. So I'm giving you as a perspective to understand that what did they do to contend for the faith? I'm glad you asked. Here's your directives. He says, here's how you do. I didn't cover verse 17. He says, you got to remember. you got to remember the spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying it, it starts with the word, and they told you this is going to happen. Why are you so shocked for the last time? You don't walk after their own ungodly lust. And, and you need to separate yourself sensually from that. Don't get into the natural instincts, because it's not the Spirit of God. And then he says, he just clicks through these four. These are personal choices. I'm all in. The point is you build. You exercise yourself by learning God's Word. Acts talks about building yourself up in the holy faith. So there's the activation of your will by the will of God through your life. Then you pray, and you pray in the Spirit, which is dealing with Ephesians 6. And then thirdly, he does talk about the idea of keeping, guarding, and protecting. And eventually, as you're guarding and protecting, you also, lastly, keep your eye on the end game, that you are looking, you're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Under eternal life, you, you do win in the end, as said. You, you, we do. So you've got to keep a, a clear perspective of all of this. And when you end up doing this, now you find yourself being able to still reach out to some and always having compassion. You want to make a difference. Listen, you don't want to make a point. You want to make a difference. When you find talking to people and they want to make a point... You can tell it. You're not trying to just make a point. You're trying to make a difference with compassion, he says. And when you do that, you are going to save some by fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment. And I'm so sorry, I'm, I can't get into any further beyond that. So by the time he gets to verse 24 and 25, I mean, 
he is like this major doxology that some pastors say it every Sunday because it's so powerful. But he says he's the one that's going to keep you from falling. He's going to present you faultless before the presence of the glory with exceeding joy. And he brings it fully back to God, the wise God of our Savior and glory and majesty and dominion and power now and forevermore. You have that kind of perspective. And we do win. You be all in. You can't take a defeatist attitude. You have responsibilities. You be involved in your church. It starts with you as a person and extends to your family and your church and your church within a society and within your city and your city within your state and your state within our own God-blessed country. But if our country goes far left, it does not change the call of God on your life. That's why God's Word is so powerful. God, thank you for your Word, the time of it. pray that you would help these folks today and encourage them. Thank you for your being the only wise God, and we're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.